When the paycheck isn't stretching like it might have once before Cause the good jobs are all gone They left you in some big box store Between food, rent, and medicine Seems suits right a whole lot been that the school board just determined what we would be paid and we thought that we should have some voice in it and that's why we struck. In 1970 a strike by school workers in Keokuk, Iowa sent shockwaves through the state and jump-started a movement for collective bargaining rights for Iowa's public sector workers. Our story of this explosive event in a little industrial town on the Mississippi River comes to us from the Speaking of Work podcast, which goes back to the 1950s and 1960s to explore the roots of the Keokuk strike. And on this week's Labor History in Two... The year was 1934. That was the day National Guard troops in Minneapolis raided Teamsters Local 574 headquarters. I'm Chris Garlock. And that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. things did they talk about when they talked when they when they thought about the possibility of a strike it had always been that the school board just determined what we would be paid and we thought that we should have some voice in it and that's why we struck that's me john mccurley talking with the late billy peters anderson in 2014 At the time, she had just turned 92. I'd come to see her where she was living with her husband, Milo Anderson, in the little town of Ursa, Illinois. I'd come to talk about something that had happened almost 45 years earlier, way back in 1970, when she was Billy Peters, an almost 50-year-old elementary school teacher in Keokuk, Iowa, a small city on the Mississippi River, right where Iowa, Missouri, and Illinois meet. 
1970, she'd been one of four people jailed for leading the first strike of Iowa teachers since World War II. Although the Keokuk teacher strike wasn't the only strike by public employees in Iowa at the time, and as we'll see, it wasn't even the only strike by school workers in Keokuk in 1970, it was arguably the most important. Like today, here in 2020, back in the late 60s and early 70s, teachers were striking in cities and states across the U.S. In Iowa, politicians and public employers were worried that what happened in Keokuk wouldn't stay in Keokuk. And, as it turns out, they were absolutely right. But none of that explains how I got to Ursa, Illinois, and to Billy Peters Anderson's kitchen table. For that, let's fast forward to just before my interview in 2014. In the fall of 2013, I was hired as the latest interviewer for something called the Iowa Labor History Oral Project, or ILHOP for short. More on ILHOP at the end of the episode. But for now, what you need to know is that back when ILHOP was started in the 1970s, it had been focused on the even deeper past, back to the immigrant coal miners in the 1800s, meatpacking workers in the Great Depression, farm equipment workers struggling with the Cold War. In the 1970s, the folks who ran ILHOP were worried about losing the voices of people who had been union activists back in the 1930s and even earlier. So they understandably avoided spending their time recording interviews with people who were engaged in the struggles going on all around them at the time. Over the next 40 years, a few of those interviews were done, and we're going to listen to some of them in this series. But when I went to work for the project, the time really had come to finish that work, to go back to interview people like Billy Peters Anderson, who had been involved in creating the Iowa that I, and a whole generation, had come to know. But back then, it was still very much a historical project. Most Iowans didn't know anything at all about the Keokuk teacher strike or the other public sector strikes of the 1960s and 1970s. This was true even though the strikes had helped to produce a 1974 law that required public employers to abide by legally binding union contracts. That law, also little known to most Iowans, had made it possible for the state's public sector workers to improve their lives, and really, thereby, the lives of all Iowans, over the next 40 years. Even for many teachers and other public sector union members, the sense was, look at the great things we've achieved, but it's so good that that fight is in the past. Thank goodness we don't have to go through things like that right now. Unfortunately, even then, there were clouds on the horizon. In 2011, right next door in Wisconsin, we had seen a new anti-union movement rise up within that state's Republican Party, led by Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. We had seen him ram through his Act 10, a law that had gutted half a century of legal protections for Wisconsin's public sector workers. Many Iowans had been part of that fight, including going to support the massive protests and uprising that had taken place in Wisconsin's capital, Madison. Similar anti-union forces had been gathering in other states. Some of those fights workers won, some they lost. Then came the election of 2016. We've got another big state. It's an important one. Actually, it's a small state, but it's a very important one. It's the state of Iowa. Six electoral votes. Last vote of Republican for George W. Bush in 2004. It has gone to Donald Trump. With Trump's victory came a Republican landslide in the Iowa legislature that handed them the governor's office, House, and Senate, a combination sometimes called a trifecta. Just like in Wisconsin, Republicans didn't waste time putting forth legislation aimed at crippling workers' rights. This included gutting the law from 1974 that had come out of the Keokuk strike. And, it's important to note, this same 1974 law had itself been passed by another, albeit very different, 
Republican trifecta, with the distance between the two telling us something about how both Iowa and U.S. politics have changed over the last half century. This new fight, which began in the winter of 2017 and, in many ways, is still going on, has spilled over into other struggles, most recently the one to keep workers safe during the COVID-19 pandemic, with workers asking themselves, what kind of movement do we have to build to get us back to where we were? Or maybe, just maybe, even someplace better. So that's our story. What were the battles for public sector workers' rights in Iowa during the 1960s and 1970s? And how are those battles still going on today? I'm your host, John McCurley, and this is Speaking of Work, the podcast from the Iowa Labor History Oral Project. You're listening to Citizen Worker, Episode 1, Keokuk, Before the Strike. When I first started going to Keokuk to conduct interviews, I was struck by how familiar the place was. I'd grown up in Alabama and lived for a little over a decade in Iowa with a short stint in mid-Missouri. Keokuk was like a mixtape of the small towns and cities that I'd visited in the South and Midwest over the years. First, it had a name that recalled the native peoples who had once lived there. In Keokuk's case, the city celebrated white people's memory of a sock chief who had worked for peace with the U.S. during the early 1800s and, in return, had ended his life as a refugee in Kansas. It also had a small, although at 4%, a little over state average, black population that had its origins with formerly enslaved people fleeing north during the Civil War. And it had been the scene of a dramatic fight for school integration. Yeah, those happened in Iowa too. Front and center, though, was the evidence of capital flight and deindustrialization. Every time I drove south into the city, I passed by the few remaining factories, the fast food chains, and a still proud but dilapidated downtown full of once majestic three- and four-story buildings that had once housed any number of thriving businesses but which were now repurposed with antique and knick-knack shops. But off this rather well-beaten path was something much more interesting and unexpected. Out in the northeast part of the city, between the main drag and the Mississippi River, was Keokuk's high school. Of course, high schools aren't usually all that remarkable, but this one was different. If anything, it reminded me of some of the buildings I'd seen from Cape Canaveral or my hometown, Huntsville, Alabama, a city that had boomed during the space race of the 1950s and 1960s and still regarded itself as the rocket city. Here in Keokuk, a little industrial city that otherwise evoked the brick and stone of the small town Midwest, was a high school that was a multi-story modernist masterpiece with a massive wall of glass that seemed suspended in midair. As I later learned, this high school had been built in the early 1950s as part of a campaign by city boosters to compete at a time when money was flowing out of big Midwestern cities like Chicago and into places like Keokuk. Eager to throw off their rough frontier image, Keokuk fathers, and they were mostly men, looked to spur investment by building one of the strongest public school systems in the state. And to do that, they were going to need teachers.
One of my advisors informed me uh, in the spring of uh, 57 that there was a team from Keokuk recruiting on campus and that I should make sure and visit with them. And I, that's the first time I really ever heard of Keokuk. But I soon learned that, uh, that it had quite a reputation as a fine school system in Iowa. And uh, I uh, interviewed and I met a principal and the superintendent that day. And they invited me to come and visit on site here in Kilka. And so I made the trip up and the superintendent gave me a little tour around town and uh, offered me a contract. So that's how I got to Keokuk. When I graduated from the university in 1959, I was told at that time that the Keokuk School District was one of the top school districts to teach in, in the state of Iowa, because of how well they treated their teachers, how well they paid their teachers, the chance for advancement, and they encouraged you going back to school, and in some cases even paid uh, money for, uh, to you to help you on those advanced degrees. When I graduated from college, uh, which would have been 1965, I applied for a job in, in Keokuk. Uh, I wanted to teach there. It was a bigger town, you know, and, and uh, you know, I went and interviewed. And uh, uh, so I, I uh, and there was a, a, a dramatic uh, uh, salary differential between teaching uh, uh, 25 miles away in Cahoka and you know, I, over the over the summer, I got my master's degree, but I went from like uh, $5,200 to $9,500 or something like that in salary. Uh, plus, you know, they had some some benefits that uh, you know I didn't even know existed. You know, as a as a young teacher in uh, in this rural Missouri town. Those were the voices of some of the many Keokuk teachers I interviewed for this project. When they were hired in the 1950s and 1960s, in many ways they considered themselves very lucky to have landed a job in Keokuk. The city and its public schools were very much on the rise. Between the late 1940s and mid-1960s, Keokuk's school district built new buildings like that high school I told you about and filled them with teachers. In fact, during those years, Keokuk's full-time teaching force almost doubled, growing from approximately 86 to 169. This for a small city of about 16,000 people. But Keokuk boosters didn't just want more teachers. They wanted highly educated and effective teachers, the kind that they believed attracted corporate investment from the small to medium-sized U.S. firms that still existed at the time and that made up the backbone of the city's economy. By 1970, almost half, that is 46%, of all Keokuk public school teachers had more than a bachelor's degree. That was the highest percentage in the state. That may not mean a lot to the non-Iowans, but we're talking about more than Des Moines or even Ames or Iowa City, where the state's two big public universities are located. So again, here in the late 1960s, in a little industrial city, often interstate, and without a public or even a private four-year college or university, there was one of, if not the, best public school system in Iowa. By the mid-1960s, Keokuk's school district also had something only a few other districts in the state had a master contract. Then as now, teachers tend to work for districts on a year-to-year -year basis. They sign individual contracts that spell out things like hours and pay. As teachers have long found, however, these individual contracts made it easy for school administrators to discriminate against them in a number of ways. 
Master contracts, by comparison, allowed teachers to join together and negotiate as a group. This not only made it less likely that a district would be able to pay some teachers less for the same work, but also made it possible to use their collective influence to get a better deal for everyone. Maybe even allowed them to address things beyond pay and benefits that were expressions of teachers' dignity and level of control of the workplace, like curriculum, the what and how of teaching. Although, as we're going to see, even a master contract wasn't always a silver bullet, especially when districts weren't bound by the results of negotiations. Since public school teachers are local public employees, their contracts are governed by state laws and local district policies, as opposed to private sector workers, like most factory workers say, whose workplace rights are mostly governed by federal laws. During the late 1950s and 1960s, following the lead of the Kennedy administration at the federal level, states and districts around the U.S. started to enact new laws opening up public sector collective bargaining. Of course, they didn't do this on their own, but when coalitions of bargaining supporters were able to overcome their opponents. In Iowa, the state's traditionally conservative Republican governments were starting to give way to liberals in both parties. But throughout the 1960s, the opponents of public sector collective bargaining were still more powerful in state government, so bargaining supporters couldn't rely on the law. That didn't mean that bargaining, or at least negotiations, weren't going on. Especially in urban areas like Keokuk, administrators and boosters realized that they could solve a lot of problems through sitting down across a table from their employees, and teachers found plenty of problems that they wanted to talk about and hopefully resolve as part of a master contract. In practice, that often meant turning their local affiliate of the national and state education associations in Keokuk, the Keokuk Education Association, or KEA, into something that increasingly looked a lot more like a union. So when you when you first got there, um, the the Keokuk Education Association um, uh, was already in existence, I imagine. Yes, it was. Do, do you have a sense for when it was founded by chance? I have no clue. No. I have no clue. I just know that the opportunity was there, and I always looked at the Education Association as one of being an insurance policy mm-hmm. because there's always something that can occur that would be a liability against you, and you needed someone there to back you up. Mm-hmm. Historically, Kirkuk was a, a Kirkuk, uh, KEA was a, a meet every month and have dinner together. <clears throat> and that began long before I came to Kirkuk. It was understood and and usually was mentioned in your recruitment interview that you were expected to be a member of KEA. The administration encouraged everyone and in many years it's 100 percent and and we had our dinner together and we had our speaker and we had our entertainment and we went home. The Keokuk Education Association organized a, a kegger for, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering it just to be the man, you know, and I probably was just the man, uh, across the river in, uh, in Illinois, you know, getting far enough away from town that a little imbibement might uh, uh, not disturb the whoever might be disturbed about that. But I mean, it created an opportunity for us to have a fraternity, you know, across the uh, across the school district. Uh, the KEA had uh, regular meetings uh, um, both at the building level and at, at across the uh, district. 
uh, where uh, you know speakers both for entertainment or inspiration were brought and brought you put your best clothes on we went to the to the dining room at the Holiday Inn you know we you know, had a night out uh, so uh, you know that I don't remember I some I, I wasn't a card player but you know others in there they, they played cards with each other you know and it was a, a great fraternity among uh, among the faculty in particular at the high school no <clears throat> particular conflict at any time at that, uh, up until about uh, 66. Uh, that's when... Uh, that's Miles Brewer, a longtime elementary school teacher and Keokuk and KEA officer. As someone who started his teaching career in the city back in the late 1950s, Brewer had a lot to say about the transition to collective bargaining in the school district, or, as he put it, the KEA shift from a supper club to a get-something-done club. Not surprisingly, the first driver of this shift was money. For teachers, as for many public sector workers back then, being left out of collective bargaining also meant being left out of the opportunity to expand pay. But pay was also part of a second issue, control. One of the major ways that districts increased teacher pay was by paying people more to do all the little things that needed to be done at a school, from lunchroom and cafeteria duty to coaching and advising clubs. But these kinds of extra duty opportunities could also feed an old problem, administrators tossing extra pay to people they liked and withholding extra pay from people they didn't. This was especially true when such opportunities for extra pay were also so-called merit pay, that is, tied to administrators' often very subjective assessments of teachers' performance in the classroom. It was quite a significant part of a person's salary if they'd been here any length of time at all. First-year teacher would not qualify for extra-duty pay. But second-year teacher could. And I, I remember distinctly my first merit job... <laughs> was extra time for extra pay, but it was selling uh, saving stamps. The residue of World War II and the Korea, mm -hmm. the kids would buy these 50-cent stamps when they got $18.75 passed in their book, take it down to the post office and get a $25 bond. Mm -hmm. And so I set up a little uh, booth in the hall every Friday and sold the stamp. And I got paid extra for that. And I got paid as time went on. <clears throat> I got paid extra for uh, supervising troop, uh, safe patrol. I got paid extra for uh, supervising playground. I got paid extra for uh, supervising the lunchroom. And on and on you go with these extra duty uh, pay. There was also a much more general problem of control. Many of Keokuk's new teachers, especially those with the MAs and PhDs, expected to be able to have more control over how and when they worked. In practice, this meant trying to negotiate over issues like personal leave and curriculum. Here's Miles Brewer again. That 
curriculum development should be formally addressed, not uh, administratively dominated. Mm -hmm. The teachers uh, had good ideas about how to select a textbook mm -hmm. just like a principal would, and we should work. Our idea was, and, and as I remember it, <clears throat> that we should work more as a team and, and, and look at these curriculum development issues as equals instead of there's a boss in the room and there's other people that will do what the boss says. Mm -hmm. But there was also another issue driving conflict between teachers and their bosses in Keokuk, one that was linked to pay and control, but that also went well beyond them. And that issue was sexism. In the 1960s, just as supporters of public sector collective bargaining were expanding workers' rights generally, labor and feminist groups were expanding the rights of women workers. Specifically, the Equal Pay Act of 1963 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 provided some new opportunities for women and their allies to challenge sex and gender discrimination in the workplace. Unfortunately, however, these laws also left some serious loopholes by which women could still be paid less and be discriminated against in a variety of ways, including in dress, hiring, discipline, and pregnancy. Uh, men and women weren't given the same salary, which was most interesting, because I always said if something happened to my husband, it cost me the same amount to buy a loaf of bread as it did as we were married. But that didn't seem to matter to them. Um, they would give men extra duty, but not women, so, for, so you'd have the opportunity to add to your base salary. When I was getting ready to apply to the Keokuk School District, or prior to that, my future father-in-law spoke to the superintendent of schools in Keokuk and said my future daughter-in-law plans to apply. And the superintendent asked about, about me, and the, my future father-in-law explained that, that we were going to be married in July. And so I would be looking for a position for that for the fall of 1960. The superintendent informed my father-in-law that he rarely or never hired young married women because it was in, in his experience, they very often became pregnant and then could not continue teaching. And he did not like that disruption in the school, in the uh, continuity of, of the school year. Of course, today that that would, statement would not be allowed to be made. Also at that time, if you were pregnant, you probably, it wasn't considered seemly to teach beyond uh, the fifth or sixth month when you were at that point starting to wear maternity clothes. It was obvious that you were pregnant. So I did not apply to the Keokuk school system, but I did apply to the Catholic school system. Um, so we wanted to wear a pants suit Heaven forbid were we scolded if we were seen in slacks. Uh, if your skirt was too short, mine was once, I got a demerit on my contract, and it took away some of the money I was going to get for a raise because I happened to be wearing a fashionable miniskirt. Um, being seen pregnant. I'd been married five years, pregnancy occurred, I wasn't to be seen in public because that was indecent exposure. I don't think so. Things happen, you know, I've been married a long time. Um, the, another incident was being seen in a bathing suit. Uh, 
that was indecent exposure. Those were the voices of Janet Fife LaFriends and Jane Foggy Abel. Fife LaFriends, who was Janet Fife back then, taught at one of the city's elementary schools. Jane Abel, she's the one who started working in the city's Catholic schools when the superintendent didn't want to hire a young married woman back in the early 1960s. She later got on at the junior high. They were the first people to introduce me to the jaw-dropping stories of sex and gender discrimination in the school district. For example, Janet's reference to being seen in a bathing suit That's a reference to an incident in which she and her husband, who was a high school industrial arts teacher, had gone out to the river, remember, Keokuk is a Mississippi River town, on a weekend. As Janet tells the story, she was wearing a two-piece bathing suit, again, weekend and river, and was seen in a convenience store by a parent of one of her students. That parent promptly picked up a telephone and called Janet's principal, who reprimanded her for conduct that was perfectly legal and that had taken place outside of work hours. Apparently, her husband's clothing, whatever it was, was not deemed indecent. These stories remind us that the efforts of Keokuk boosters to transform the city's schools emphasize recruiting and retaining highly educated men, first and foremost. But to fully understand that discrimination and the ways in which it connected to the KEA's efforts to negotiate with the school district during the late 1960s, we need to hear from Miles Brewer one more time. And yes, what he is about to say is stud fee. S-T-U-D. Stud fee. There were different uh, perks for guys. We call it a stud fee. I would have uh, a stipend added to my salary for the fact that I was married. My first child would produce another stipend, and my second child would produce another stipend. This was something I know that that the ladies were uh, resenting, and and this was another one of the things that that, uh, a large percentage, since most of the faculty were ladies, they wanted it to be addressed, and there was no... Uh, structure by which it could be addressed formally. Uh, It would be brought up by the salary committee and the superintendent would say, well, I'll take your request to the board and and it will be their decision. And they always came back with uh, denied. (laughs) You know, they, they were more diplomatic than that, but everybody knew what they meant. So, by the late 1960s, in Keokuk, Iowa, you had a large group of nearly 200 highly educated classroom teachers who were increasingly coming to see themselves as united around their common interests in things like pay and workplace control. Even though men were certainly privileged, they were also a minority, and many of them, especially in the leadership of the KEA, recognized that they couldn't address any of these common interests without also taking on what might today be called systemic inequalities around sex and gender. Moreover, as a whole, they had come to expect an increasing willingness on the part of the district to address these issues through the negotiation of master contracts. But as we'll see in Episode 2, 
As teachers became more assertive and district finances began to change, the school board rejected these expectations and any self-imposed limitations that went along with them. In 1969, the board hired a new superintendent, Robert Leland, and they began a new round of negotiations unlike any the district had ever seen. Speaking of Work is a production of the Iowa Labor History Oral Project. ILHOP is a 40-year-old oral history project in collaboration between the University of Iowa Labor Center, the UI Libraries, the State Historical Society of Iowa, the Iowa Labor History Society, and the Iowa Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO. The views expressed in this podcast are those of project staff, not necessarily those of ILHOP's partners or collaborators. Our theme song, Enemy, comes courtesy of Matthew Grimm. You can find his latest album, Dumpster Fire Days, at all major music retailers. And you can follow him on Twitter at Grim Reality or on his website, GrimReality.net. Keokuk, performed by Lori Lee Woods. All other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about Ilhop and about our show, Speaking of Work, at its home on the web, iowalaborhistory.org. Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day National Guard troops in Minneapolis raided Teamsters Local 574 headquarters. Over 150 were arrested, including top strike leaders Bill Brown and the Dunn brothers, who were imprisoned in military stockades. Troops also seized union records and files. They then raided the Central Labor Union and forcing out dozens of area labor leaders. The Teamsters had been battling the trucking bosses and the Citizens Alliance throughout the spring and summer in what would be a turning point for industrial organizing. Finally, drivers agreed to a tentative settlement, but the bosses rejected any deal, refusing to negotiate with Reds. Farmer Labor Party Governor Floyd Olson declared martial law the next day. 4,000 troops arrived, issuing unlimited military permits to scab drivers. By month's end, over 7,500 scab trucks were rolling throughout the city. Local 574 challenged the martial law, demanding that peaceful picketing and open-air meetings be reinstated. They also wanted troops withdrawn from the city, and they wanted all truck movement halted for 48 hours. When Olson rejected these demands, a mass rally was called for the 31st to mobilize mobilize strike support. 25,000 turned out to the parade grounds cheering strike leader Bill Brown, who declared, quote, the Farmer Labor Party is the best strike-breaking force our union has ever gone up against. Historian Brian Palmer notes, the loudest and longest applause was reserved for Albert Goldman, who thundered, quote, if we submit without a struggle, then we deserve the fate of submissive slaves. We cannot, we dare not submit. We call upon the workers, organize and unorganized to clench their fists, shout defiance of the bosses, and struggle until victory or death. When the paycheck just ain't stretching like it might have
week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review that really helps folks to find the show. Our report on the 1970 Keokuk strike came to us from Speaking of Work, podcast of the Iowa Labor History Oral Project, which focuses on stories drawn from the everyday and extraordinary struggles of Midwestern workers, past and present. It's produced and hosted by John McCurley, the oral historian at the University of Iowa Labor Center, and you can find it on your favorite podcast platform. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music is by Matthew Grimm, two versions of his song, One Big Union. You heard about him at the end of the Kia Cup report, but I want to urge you to check out his music and support this guy. His songs don't pull any punches, and they're just what we need these days. As Matthew says on his website, grimreality.net, there's a better fucking world to be made. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdat. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time. That will be